Section 8 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Leo Wiener Chapter 5, Part 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault Here are the proofs from the New Testament. The first proof the theology finds in Christ's conversation with his disciples, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. John fourteen eleven, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John fourteen thirteen. From the fact that Jesus Christ calls himself the Son of the Father, God, just as he taught all men to call themselves the sons of God, it is argued that Jesus Christ is a second person of God. The author says, quote, Here evidently two persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Son, are distinguished. Unquote. The second proof is taken from the passage where Jesus Christ says to his disciples, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. John fourteen fifteen through 17 The last verse is not written out, but instead of it, the continuation is taken from verse 26 of the same chapter. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send you in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. From this it is concluded, quote, Here all three persons of the Most Holy Trinity are distinguished, namely as persons, the Son who speaks of himself, I will pray, the Father, I will pray the Father, the Holy Ghost, who is called another Comforter, consequently distinct from the Father, and he will be sent to take the place of the Son with the Apostles and to teach them everything, consequently he is just such a person as the Son. Unquote. Because the paraclete, that is, the comforter, whom Christ promises his disciples after his death, is once, during that conversation, called the Holy Ghost, it is taken as a proof that Christ, in this conversation, revealed the mystery of the Holy Trinity. No attention at all is paid to the meaning which this word has in the whole conversation, for even there the Comforter is called the Spirit of Truth, precisely what Christ calls his teaching. I go away and come again unto you, John fourteen twenty eight, and I in you and ye in me. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, 
and make our abode with him. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. For he shall receive the spirit of truth, and shall show it unto you. John 14.14 14. These passages which explain the whole meaning of the conversation are not quoted, but the word, quote, holy, unquote, which is attached as an epithet to the Spirit, is taken as a proof that here Christ spoke of the third person of the Trinity. Third proof. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. John fifteen twenty six. These words, which quite clearly and simply say that when I shall no longer be alive, and you shall be permeated by the Spirit of truth, by that truth which I have taught you, and which proceeds from God, you will convince yourself of the truth of my teaching. These words are taken as a new proof that here are clearly distinguished, as in the previous text, all three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and at the same time they prove the consubstantiality of the Holy Ghost with God, the Spirit of Truth, which proceedeth from the Father. Fourth Proof the words of John 15.15 Therefore said I, that the Spirit of truth shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. The words which clearly speak of the Spirit, of the teaching as given by Jesus Christ, serve as a proof that here mention is made of the consubstantiality with the Son. Fifth, the words, I came out from God, I came forth from the Father, John sixteen twenty seven twenty eight, which cannot signify anything but the filial relation of any man to God, precisely what Jesus Christ has preached, are taken as a proof that, quote, here with new force is expressed the idea of the consubstantiality of the Son with the Father, unquote. In the second series of proofs from the New Testament, there appear first the concluding words of St. Matthew, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, Which Jesus Christ said when he appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. Without saying anything about the meaning and the especial character in general of the whole gospel after the resurrection, of which mention will be made later, these words serve only as a proof, as which even the church understands it, that in accepting Christianity it was necessary to acknowledge the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost as the foundations of the teaching. But from this does not follow by any means that God consists of three persons, and so the demands that the words, quote, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, unquote, be used can by no means have anything in common with the arguments about the existence of God in three persons. 
the theology itself admits that the customary formula of baptism can by no means be regarded as a proof of the trinity of god and so on page 177 and 178 it explains why it is necessary to understand god in three persons by this the explanations are as follows Quote, the Savior had before explained to the apostles more than once that under the appellation of the Father was to be understood God the Father who had sent him into the world. John six thirty eight to forty seven sixteen eighteen twenty eight eleven forty two and elsewhere. And who is another that beareth witness of him? John, verse 32. Under the name of the Son he understood himself, whom the apostles indeed professed as the Son of God, who came from the Father. Matthew sixteen sixteen, John sixteen thirty. Finally, under the name of the Holy Ghost, he understood another comforter whom he had promised to send to them in his place from the father john sixteen sixteen fifteen twenty six unquote. no proof is needed that christ understood god by the father for that is admitted by everybody but there is no proof and there can be none that under the son he meant himself and under the holy ghost a new person of the Trinity. As a proof that he is the second person, they adduced the passage, Matthew sixteen sixteen, where Peter says to Christ what Christ has always said about all other people, that is, that they are sons of God, and John sixteen thirty, where his disciples say to him what he teaches all other men. In proof of the separate existence of the third person, there are repeated the same verses, John fourteen fourteen, and fifteen twenty six, which means something different. Under the name of the Comforter, Jesus Christ understands the Spirit of Truth, but cannot understand any third person. The clearest proof of it is that in the Gospels there are no proofs. Outside of these passages, which prove nothing, it is impossible to find anything else. But the theology, not at all embarrassed by this, regards its proposition as proved, and says, quote, Consequently, since the Savior did not consider it necessary to add a new explanation of the above-mentioned words, Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, he in the present case understood, and the apostles understood with him, nobody else but the three divine persons by the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. In the third series there is one last and chief proof from the New Testament. Those are the words of John in his first epistle, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The theology says, quote, 
in this passage there is expressed even more clarity than before the trinity of the persons in god and the unity of the essence the trinity of the persons for the father the word and the holy ghost are called three witnesses consequently they are distinct from each other and the word and the holy ghost mentioned as witnesses with the father are not merely two of his attributes or forces or actions but just such persons as the father the unity of the essence for if the word or the holy ghost did not have the self-same divine nature and substance with the father but a lower created nature there would be an endless distance between them and the father and it would not be possible to say and those three are one Unquote. but unfortunately although this passage no matter how weak it is may serve if not as proof at least as an incentive to the assertion that god is one and three unfortunately not all agree with the theologians it says quote, unjust are those who wish to weaken the power of this passage by asserting that the three celestial witnesses the father the word and the holy ghost are represented as one not in relation to their essence but only in relation to their unanimous testimony just like the three terrestrial witnesses who are mentioned in the following verse there are three that bear witness in earth the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one one john verse eight form unquestionably one not by their essence but only in relation to the testimony it must be remarked that the apostle himself distinguishes the unity of the celestial and the unity of the terrestrial witnesses of the latter which are indeed different among themselves or different in their essence he expresses himself only by saying and those three agree in one that is in one in relation to the testimony but of the first he says and these three are one and not agree in one consequently our one is a great deal more than what the terrestrial witnesses are they are one not only in relation to the testimony but also in their essence this is the more certain since the holy apostle himself in the next verse calls the testimony of the celestial witnesses without any distinction the witness of god if we receive the witness of men the witness of god is greater consequently he assumes that the three witnesses of heaven are one namely in their divinity or are three persons of god it is the more certain since the same holy apostle even before in his gospel mentions each of the three witnesses of heaven the father the son or word and the holy ghost and mentions them as three persons of god consubstantial among themselves when expounding the words of the saviour though i bear record of myself yet my record is true for i know whence i came and whither i go i am one that bears witness of myself and the father 
that sent me beareth witness of me. John eight, fourteen, eighteen. Compare with John verse thirty two and thirty seven. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. John fifteen twenty six. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. John sixteen, fourteen, fifteen. Unquote. Still more unfortunate is that this solitary passage, which, however weak it is, at least in some way confirms the words of the three gods and of one, that this same passage turns out, according to the testimony of the theology, to be debatable, and, according to the unanimous testimony of all learned criticism, spurious. Quote, Unfair is the attempt which is made to doubt the authenticity of the passage under discussion by pointing out that it does not exist in certain Greek texts of the New Testament and in certain translations, especially in the East, and by showing that it was not used by the ancient fathers of the Church, such as St. Gregory the Divine, Ambrose, Hilary, nor by the councils of Nice and Sardis and others, which were against the Arians, though this verse might have served as an important tool against the heretics, and though some of the fathers have made use of verses 6 and 8 of the same chapter, which are much less strong and decisive. All these proofs of the assumed spuriousness of the verse under discussion are quite insufficient for their purpose, and besides, are refuted by positive proofs. A. If in some Greek texts of the New Testament, which have been preserved until the present, this verse does not exist. It has been, and still is, in many others. Why, then, arises the question, should we give preference to the first over the latter, and conclude that it was added to the latter, and not omitted in the first? On the contrary, justice demands that preference be given to the latter." Unquote. Those are all the proofs from the Holy Spirit of the Old and the New Testament. The only passage from the whole Scripture which presents a similitude of that assertion that God is one and three is spurious, and its reality is confirmed by the polemics of the composer of the theology. But there are also proofs from holy tradition. Quote, Confirmation of the same truth from holy tradition. No matter how clear and numerous the passages are from Holy Scripture, especially from the New Testament, which contain the doctrine of the Trinity of the persons in one God, it is necessary for us here to turn to holy tradition, which has been preserved in the Church from its very beginning. It is necessary to do so because all these passages from Scripture have been subject to all kinds of interpretations and controversies which cannot be permanently settled, at least not for a believer, but by the voices of the apostolic tradition and the ancient church. 
It is necessary also in order to defend the church itself against the unjust rebuke of the free thinkers that the church began to offer the doctrine about the three hypostases in God only with the fourth century or with the first ecumenical council, but that before that time it was entirely unknown to the church or was presented in an entirely different form. Consequently, it is sufficient to take the thread of the tradition to the fourth century or to the first ecumenical council and to show whether and how the ancient Christian church taught about the Holy Trinity in the first three centuries. So we have learned from the theology that there are absolutely no proofs in Scripture in confirmation of the Trinity except the polemics of the composer of the theology. We have also learned that it is not even possible to assert that the Church has always adhered to this tradition and that the only foundation of this assertion is left in the polemical act of the composer of the theology. I have read all the proofs of Article 28, which show in fifteen pages that the Church has always professed the Trinity, but these arguments have not convinced me, not because I have read more exact and convincing proofs against it, but because my feeling revolts and I cannot believe that God, who has revealed himself to me in such a senseless, wild expression as that, quote, I am one and three, and I am the Father and the Son, and I am the Spirit, unquote, should not have given me in his scripture, or in his tradition, or in my soul, any means to understand what it signifies, but has condemned me for the solution of the question about God and my salvation to have recourse to no other means than believing the argument of the orthodox theology against the rationalists and repeating, without comprehension of what I am saying, the words which the orthodox theology will dictate to me. I was on the point of making my last conclusion about this dogma when immediately after the article about the tradition there was revealed to me Article 29, and as the crown of the whole, the relation of the dogma about the trinity of the persons in one God to common sense, we shall now take the liberty to say a few words about its relation to common sense in order on the one hand to overthrow the false opinions in respect to this subject and on the other to point out and elucidate to ourselves the true opinion. Since antiquity there have existed two false opinions in respect to this matter. Some have asserted that the teaching of the triune God is contrary to common sense because it is contradictory in itself but they assert so without any foundation. Christianity teaches that God is one and trine, not in the self-same relation, but in different relations, that he is one in essence, but trine in person, and gives us one conception about the divine essence and another about the divine persons, so that these concepts in no way exclude each other. Where then is the contradiction? Christianity gives us one conception about the essence and another about the divine persons. That is precisely what I have been looking for, namely, what these different conceptions about the person and the essence are. 
but that is not to be found anywhere. Not only is it absent, but there can be no answer because the words now mean something different and now mean one and the same and are used indiscriminately. Quote, if Christianity taught that God is one in essence and trine in essence, or that there are in him three persons and one, or again, that person and essence in God are identical, then there would indeed be a contradiction. But, we repeat, Christianity does not teach that, and he who does not intentionally mix the Christian conception of the essence and the persons in God will never think of looking for an internal contradiction in the teaching about the Holy Trinity." Unquote. Does not intentionally mix. Have I not strained all the powers of my mind in order to find in the teaching the slightest difference in the conceptions about the essence and the persons without finding any? And the author knows that there is none. Quote, in order to call a certain idea contradictory to common sense and to itself, it is necessary first of all completely to grasp this idea, to comprehend the meaning of its subject and predicate, and to see their incongruity. But in relation to the mystery of the Holy Trinity, no one can boast of that. All we know is what nature or essence or person among creatures is but we do not fully comprehend the essence or the persons in God who infinitely surpasses all his creations. Consequently, we are not able to judge whether the idea of God, one in essence and trine in persons, is congruous or not. We have not the right to assert that the idea that God, one in essence and three in persons, includes an internal contradiction. Is it sensible to judge of what is not comprehensible? Unquote. In Division A, it was said that the conception of the essence was one, and of the persons another, and that Christianity taught it, but this teaching did not appear anywhere. But let us suppose that we have not read what precedes, have not studied the whole book, and have not convinced ourselves that such a distinction exists, and that we believe it. How, then, is it said in Division B that we cannot and have not the right to call an idea contradictory to common sense without having comprehended the meaning of its subject and predicate? The subject is, one, the predicate, three. That is comprehensible. But if the subject is one God and the predicate, three gods, the contradiction is by the laws of reason the same. If, according to the introduction of the concept of God, one may become equal to three, we shall insensibly be talking about what we do not comprehend, before we insensibly judge of what we do not understand. And it is there where it begins. And these senseless words, according to the confession of the theology, the highest reason and the highest goodness speaks in reply to the entreaties of his children searching after truth. Quote, C. On the contrary, common sense cannot help recognizing this idea as completely true and devoid of any contradiction. It does not comprehend its internal meaning, 
but on the basis of external testimony it knows conclusively that this idea has clearly been communicated by god himself in the christian revelation god is the god of truth Unquote. what is said cannot be understood but it is so quote, on the basis of external conclusive testimony unquote, so that it is possible without understanding them to repeat the words which the theology speaks but in this case as we see there are none of those external proofs not only no conclusive proofs but no proofs at all nowhere in holy scripture does it say that the spirit of god is a third person what moses wrote about god saying to himself quote, let us make unquote, cannot be called a reliable proof and the fact that in jesus christ's conversation in saint john there is once used the word holy ghost when speaking of the truth is not a conclusive evidence the fact that in baptizing into christianity the words quote, in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost unquote, are used is also not an evidence the spurious verse from the epistle of john not only does not argue in favor of the trinity but is a clear proof of their not being and never having been any proof and that those who wanted to prove it felt so themselves. From the external evidences, there is left only the polemic of the author against those who reject the verse from St. John, and against the rationalists who assert that the Church did not accept the doctrine of the Trinity until the fourth century. Let us assume that I am so little intelligent and so illiterate that I believe the polemic of the author and agree with him that the dogma of the Trinity is recognized by the one holy Catholic apostolic infallible church and that I want to believe in it. I cannot believe it because I cannot form any concept about what is meant by the triune God. Neither I nor anyone else can recognize this dogma if for no other reason because the words, as they were expressed at first, have remained, after long speeches, quasi-explanations, and proofs, nothing but words which can have no meaning whatever for a man with an unimpaired reason. On the basis of the sacred church tradition you may assert anything you please, and if the tradition is imperturbable, it is impossible not to recognize as true what is transmitted by tradition. In any case, it is necessary to assert something, but here nothing is asserted. These are words without any inner connection. Let us assume that it is asserted that God lives on Olympus, that God is made of gold, that there is no God, that there are fourteen gods, that God has children, or a son. All those are strange, wild assumptions, but with each of them some idea is connected, but no idea is connected with the assertion that God is one and three. So no matter what authority may assert it, even if it be all the living and dead patriarchs of Alexandria and Antioch, 
and no matter what uninterrupted voice from heaven may call out to me saying, quote, I am one and three, unquote, I shall remain in the same condition, not of unbelief, there is nothing here to believe in, but of perplexity about what these words mean and in what language and by what law they may receive a meaning. For me, a man educated in the spirit of the Christian faith, who after all the airing of his life has retained a dim consciousness of what there is true in it, for me, who by the blunders of life and the seduction of reason have reached the negation of life in most terrible despair, for me who have found salvation in uniting with it the spirit of religion, which I recognized as the only divine force which moved humanity, and who have been in search of the highest expression of this religion which would be accessible to me, for me who above all believe in God my Father, through whose will I exist, suffer, and agonizingly search after his revelation, for me to admit that these senseless, blasphemous words are the only answer which I can receive from my Father in response to my entreaty as to how to understand and love him, for me this is impossible. It is impossible to believe that God, my good Father, according to the teaching of the Church, knowing that my salvation or perdition depends on my comprehension of him, should have expressed the most essential knowledge about himself in such a way that my reason, which he has given me, should not be able to comprehend his expressions, and, according to the teaching of the Church, should have concealed all the truth so important to men under indications in the plural number of verbs and in any case, in an ambiguous, obscure interpretation of words, such as the Spirit and the Son, in Jesus' farewell conversation in St. John, and in the spurious verse in the epistle, and that my knowledge of God and my salvation and that of billions of men should depend on a greater or lesser verbal glibness of all the Renans and Macaris. I shall believe him who has the best arguments." No, if it were so, God would have given me such an intellect that one equals three would be as comprehensible as it is impossible now, and such a heart that it would be a joy to admit three gods, whereas now my heart revolts against them, or at least he would have given all that to me in a definite and simple manner, and not in debatable and ambiguous words." God cannot have commanded me to believe. The very reason why I do not believe is because I love, worship, and fear God. I am afraid to believe the lie which surrounds us and to lose God. That is impossible, and not only impossible, but it is quite clear that it is not the truth, that I was mistaken in thinking that I could find an answer and a solution of my doubts in the church. I had intended to go to God, and I found my way into a stinking bog which evokes in me only those feelings of which I am most afraid, disgust, malice, and indignation. God, that incomprehensible but still existing one, by the will of whom I live, thou hast implanted in me this striving after the knowledge of thee and of myself. I have erred. 
I have searched after the truth in the wrong place. I know that I erred. I have pampered my evil passions, and I know that they were bad, but I have never forgotten thee. I have always felt thee, even in moments of erring. I came very near perishing when I lost thee, but thou gavest me thy hand, and I grasped it, and life was illuminated for me. Thou hast saved me, and I am searching after this alone, to come near unto thee, and to understand thee as much as is possible. Help me, teach me. I know that I am good, that I love and want to love all, and want to love truth. Thou art the God of love and truth. Take me nearer unto thee, disclose everything to me, so that I may be able to understand about myself and about thee. And the good God, the God of truth, replies to me through the mouth of the church, quote, The deity is one and trine. O most glorious transformation! Unquote. Go yourselves to your father, the devil, you who have taken the keys of the kingdom of heaven and have not yourselves entered it and have closed it against others. You are not speaking of God, but of something else. End of section 8 Recording by Laurie Arsenault